I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey. Hey, Danny. How's yeah, it going? Pretty good. What have you been up to this week? This week, well, legendary horror director, or maybe not, not even horror director, director, George A. Romero died at the age of 77. Zombie Man. Zombie Man. Well, that's what he's known for. He made a lot of un- other interesting films around that genre. But uh, I've recently got Amazon Prime, sort of by mistake. I kind of got it for the three months trial, forgot I had it. Yeah, now that's I'm how like, they get you. I've, I, the Amazon Prime has gotten me exactly the same way. Yes. I had to go back and cancel it. So I've paid £8, but I figured if I watch enough movies on Amazon Prime, they're pretty much paying me. Absolutely. Uh, um, so I was watching what movies, George Murrow movies they have on Amazon Prime. They haven't got the best ones. There was last two dead movies, mm. Diary of the Dead, which got a release, and Survival of the Dead, which I wasn't even aware was a thing until what I is, watched it. What is Survival of the Dead? It's his last ever film. i got to say, it's pretty good. It's all about a zombie apocalypse, but it's got this kind of um, Hatfields and McCoys plot line where these kind of two warring, for some reason, Irish patriarchs on an island in America who are like warring over how to best deal the zombie problem. And it's all about how humanity's inability to cooperate is its downfall. Got it. But even like, I guess now you we view it, we view it, we, the critical audience, view it as like, as his last movie, it's like a sort of, you know, later work by a director who's a bit more melancholy. But uh, yeah, it's kind of cool. It's the last shot of these two zombie old men who die in the movie, spoiler, like still shooting at each other, even in the afterlife. Even quite, as zombies. Yeah, and it's quite a cool, like, that's the final shot of his last movie. Right, yeah. That's, that's a nice little, you know, full stop on things. What was the, what's the sort of budget of this one like? Very low. You know, because he started off making, you know, the indie movie, Night of the Living Dead, which was shot for, like, pennies. And yeah, sort of, like, it. proved that you could just go out and make a movie and make it a hit. And that's brilliant. I've and yeah, and it's it. a great movie. But it says something that, like, a cheap 16 mil movie looks... Like so much better than a cheap digital movie. Oh, the budget yeah, was probably yeah. bit you know bigger, but just something about film lends it a little bit more. Bit of class. Well, yeah, I kind of wish he just shot it all in black and white in sixteen millimeter rather than digital cameras. Yeah, I mean, yeah, cheap. maybe would have gotten a bigger audience from people fascinated by the you know. But if you want to see it, it's on Amazon Prime. I'll give you my login. Actually, I won't because then you can just order you know all this random shit. Stop offering people your Amazon Prime login yeah. on the podcast. I keep on offering it and I keep on realizing that's a bad idea. Did you get any, did anyone, because uh, you, you offered Amazon Prime to people last week, did anyone? Uh, no one DM'd me. No one DM'd you? No one slid into your DMs. I'm oh, sure shit. about that, man. Anyway, Sam, what is this podcast about? Um, let me tell you. It's, an, it's got an interesting, quite outre concept. Quite a high concept podcast. It's all about a group of young anthropomorphic reptiles named after Renaissance Italian artists 
trained by a rat in the art of ninjutsu. They learn that the scientist Baxter Stockman is working for an evil Japanese gangster called Shredder and plans to bust him out of prison. The Foot Clan attacks Shredder's convoy while he's being transferred between prisons, and although the cheerful young, giant, friendly, violent reptiles try to intervene, he escapes by means of a transportation device. Shredder is hijacked mid-teleport, as he is sort of escaping, and taken to another dimension where he meets an alien warlord, Krang. Now, Krang reveals his plan to invade Earth, and the plan is that he's going to open a, a portal above the Earth and descend uh, onto New York City in a modular war machine called the Technodrome. Um, it's what I would be saying if this was a adaptation of the 2016 film Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Out of the Shadows. But that was a that was a sort of switcheroo. That's not what it is at all. It's just a podcast where we talk about and review films. I'm Sam Foster, and joining me, a mid twenties, genetically ordinary human man, not trained to be some sort of feudal Japanese covert agent you know. who can do martial arts, and not named after an Italian artist from any period of history, or indeed any artist at all, as far as I know, Danny Moran. That's true. That's true. It's good to be here, Sam. You've known me for a long, long time. You know, there are three things I look for in films. Yeah. One, it's got to be a war. You're always after that. Two, generally bleak atmosphere. You love that shit. And three, bipedal primates. So, imagine my delight when two films are in UK cinemas that fulfill those requirements. First off, we're going to review War for the Plow of the Apes, starring accomplished character actor slash Randy Fuck Machine, Andy Serkis. Will we go bananas for this film? Or will we fling shit at it? It's a ape pun. Then we give our verdict on Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk, his epic war film shot on our film format so large there's an affront to God. But will we go bananas for this film? Or will we... F- I couldn't think of a Dunkirk pun. It seemed in poor taste. I just used the same ape pun. <laughs> Plus, we discuss the first footage of James Franco playing famed director slash possible vampire Tommy Wiseau. Wonder if binge-releasing franchise movies is a smart studio strategy and debate whether Dev Patel has become sexy enough to play a stripper. All of which leave me just enough time before my latest impression, Tyrese Gibson seeing a hot, bikini-clad babe and then seeing her explode. <laughs> okay, I've got, I'm, I'm girding myself for this for this gift. Damn. Damn! Oh, I see. Because he's like... He's like, damn. He's turned on, then and he's then like, he's oh. like, shocked. Yeah, yeah, he's damn. horrified. Damn! That sounds a bit more like Tyrese Gibson seeing a hot babe and then like burning his toast or something. Damn! <laughs> You're right. <laughs> I don't know how he would react to an explosion because he's already, you know, yeah, kind of like nine all the time. Yeah, probably much the same. Yeah, him reacting to toast but being burnt and cars exploding. It's probably... going to be the same, isn't it? Just shock. Damn. He's a very surprised man. Film chat has begun. 
Georgia Mills has written into us, which is quite nice. Thank you, Georgia. She says, Flim Chart. What do you feel about this new film about the room? From the one clip I've seen, it looks unimaginably lame. But what are your thoughts? So she's referring to the movie The Disaster Artist, which is... Uh, is it Who's directing that film? Dir- directed by Franco. Franco's directing it himself. Yeah. So it's James Franco and Seth Rogen, their project to adapt uh, the book The Disaster Artist, which is written about the making of the film The Room by one of the stars of that film. And James Franco is going to be Tommy Wiseau. I guess in case you're not aware of The Room, it was like a cult bad film that was made in about 2009. And no, 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 it's much earlier. Oh, much earlier, like, yeah. what, like 2005 or something, six? I don't know. I don't know. I think it's early noughties. No, I saw it in 2009. So, <laughs> yeah, it was made a long time previously to that. But it became a cult movie sometime after its release, starting in Los Angeles and then spreading throughout the globe. Everyone was going to see it just purely because it was so bad. And it is quite a special film. It's true. It's Most bad Citizen... films are boring. Yeah, and... it's the Citizen Kane of bad movies. Citizen Kane of bad movies. It's spectacular. And so there was a kind of tell-all book written by one of the stars who worked with the eccentric director and writer of that film, Tommy Wiseau now being adapted and it got it's gotten quite a good reception on the festival circuit right this movie yeah and uh and they recently released a clip from it shall we hear a bit of the, the... sure take 67 action i hit her no do you want to change the line you're doing great man we'll get there action 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 you have to say out loud i can't hear in here say action so i can hear her okay Action! I did not hit her. It's not true. It's bullshit. I did not hit her. I did not. Oh, hi, Mark. There we are. So, like, I can see why Georgia is a bit um, apprehensive about it because it basically uh, is very kind of um, here's the joke kind of thing. Yeah. Because it's one of the most famous lines from the movie. And uh, and it's just them kind of luxuriating in it. It's basically like the bit from Hail Caesar, isn't it? Yeah, essentially. It's pretty much the same would thing in Hail Caesar. So yeah, would that it were so simple, but like with... Uh... Oh, hi, Mark. Oh, hi, Mark. I did not. I did not hit her. I did not hit her. I did not. That's bullshit. That's bullshit. I did not. Um, yeah. What do you think of James Franco's... It's quite good, actually, isn't it? Yeah. His Tommy Wiseau is not, not that bad at all. Yeah, it's good, but I don't know if he's just like quite an easy person to impersonate. Just like have a vaguely I did Eastern not European accent, and you just have a have a stupid wig on. Yeah, yeah, I and guess you're so. Sorted. Yeah, I don't know. It feels a bit like a lot of these kinds of movies made by these guys always feels like they're just made for themselves and their gaggle of mates in LA. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what's that apocalypse one where they're all like, you know, Rihanna oh, dies the in the apocalypse? This is the end. Like it feels like it was just made for the people in the film. That's true. And there's a similar kind of feeling to to this scene where it's like they're obviously all pissing themselves laughing because they just love the room so much but yeah it's kind of i'm a bit worried by the sort of take on the material because um the film ed wood was in my mind this week because martin lando died who played yeah. bella lugosi won an oscar for playing bella lugosi edward and that's like a brilliant film about misguided director who made terrible films but the sort of that's a very kind of sweet endearing film. yeah yeah whereas it feels the reason the room is so brilliant is that it's the sweet spot of a genuine, sincere ambition and terrible, incompetent execution. And when you're watching it, you're constantly thinking, what were they thinking? You're constantly thinking, what were they thinking? Yeah. If that makes sense. Uh, so to have this behind the scenes making of, it's a bit like, as you were saying, kind of explain the joke until it's not funny anymore. Yeah. So, you know, 
like that's James Franco doing that scene is not as hilarious as the actual scene. They, I don't think this. I don't. I don't understand how this movie could possibly be as funny as the room itself. Yeah. Because yeah, basically, as you say, what's funny is not knowing what the hell's going on, <laughs> and just having like another film which deconstructs the joke. Yeah. of this film seems like a weirdly unnecessary thing. So it's got a lot to do to justify its own existence, basically. And the clip that they released did seem to be basically for the Room fans so that we can all be like, oh, it's that line. Yeah, now that, now James Franco's doing it. Yeah, like, h- how many people have seen The Room? Like, it's got to be able to have an audience outside that, right? Yeah, yeah. There's got to be some kind of pitch to this movie for people who don't know what The Room is. I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like... We'll have to wait and see it. I mean, I'm encouraged that they that it got a really good reception on the festival circuit. Apparently, it might be James Franco's best performance. Wow, is that what they're saying? Better than uh, Harry Osborn in Spider Man. Even better than that film where, like, King Cobra, where he t- keeps shouting at the guy to fuck him in the ass. Even better than that one. I mean, he's pretty good in that movie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, another regular correspondent, Chris Young, got in touch. He says, "Hi, film chat." He gets you- our name correct. All right, Georgia, it's film chat. It's film chat. Flim chat, please. He says, hi, film chat, our actual name. What do you think of this idea? I have franchise fatigue, so I don't know if this would make it worse or better. And he linked us to an article about um, Fox Studios' plan to make a trilogy of films based on R.L. Stein, uh, the author of Goosebumps. He's got apparently got another horror franchise called Fear Streets. But the twist is they're going to get this director, Leigh Janique, to make three films back-to-back and then release the films sort of back-to-back one month apart. So if the first film's a hit, you don't have to wait four weeks to see the next one and the four weeks to see the other one. And uh, this seems like a sort of almost televisual approach to film releasing. Yeah, yeah. That sounds stupid. <laughs> it just sounds such like it's like such an idiotic idea. That's my, that's my initial reaction to it. I don't understand, like... Why are studio executives behaving as though the film business is going to die at any second? It's like a sort of going don't, out of business sale. Yeah, like, don't films still, like, they're profitable. Like, yeah, yeah, big yeah. movies are really profitable. People go to see it. Like, yeah. what's the problem? Why Why do they have to behave in this panicked, insane way where they, like, just come up with these, like, ridiculous conceptual, like, oh, we're going to make 11 films in the same universe. We're, like, we announced them before we've made one. Or this, like... Oh, we're going to make a trilogy and release them all back to... What if your first movie sucks? Why have you made two other films? <laughs> and, like, why... Like, what problem is this intending to solve? Do they think that the reason people binge-watch TV is because they intrinsically would rather watch 13 hours of something than two hours of it? Like, what if we make... Like, okay, uh, I just made The Mummy and it didn't, it didn't work out, but what if we make it again, but it's, like, 14 hours long and we release, like one film a day it's like yeah yeah what why like yeah i also think it um kind of ignores the fact that part of the appeal of sequels is the sort of build-up to them and the anticipation and you know they're just junking yeah junking all um, of that like the sense of occasion with that like that accompanies the release of a film yeah yeah it's like oh no forget that you know you need like films need time to sort of settle if they're like especially if they're gonna if you're expecting like a monster hit like, I want to see the new Mad Max movie, but I don't want to watch it, like, two days after I've seen Fury Road or whatever. I'd yeah. Like that movie to settle in and... <laughs> it's such a gimmick, and it seems like... I don't know. It makes... On no level does this make sense to me. I, I can only imagine that the part of, they're trying to do it because they think that there's some kind of event in and of itself to releasing a film this way. 
and that people will be intrigued by the notion of a movie coming out every month that's in the same series. But is the is that sense enough of a draw that it's worth more than the like sense of event that you would simply get from the sequel to a successful film if they made one good film and then made another film that was good? Yeah, I don't see how the time scale would alter the enthusiasm. It's like anything, are there are a lot of people who don't see like, I just saw exactly that exactly yeah like are there a lot of people who don't see movies because like the first movie came out last year and they'd forgotten about it or something yeah it's like oh well, I really would have gone to see that movie only if, but only if it'd come out like one week after the <laughs> like the, the the previous yeah film. if anything audiences build over time like yeah yeah because you, know, you need like there needs to be you know the, the for, yeah the the, uh, the on demand sales or whatever exactly. and the DVDs I mean the Planet of the Apes saga I didn't watch the first movie in the cinema. And then I caught up with them DVD and I was like, I like this. I want to see the sequel. But if they'd released them all in a month, I could have missed all these eight movies. Yeah. And then where would I be? And they wouldn't have had time to make their, that CGI so good. <laughs> yeah. Like, so I don't, know what, pl- I don't know what their plans are for Fear Street. But, you know, think how much like more sophisticated the CGI for Fear Street could be if they simply waited seven years before making the next film. So to answer your question, Chris, we agree with you. This is a bad idea. We think it sounds idiotic. And I'd be, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if they don't do it because <laughs> I feel like a lot of these random, this random stuff gets announced and then like, uh, you know, I mean, my, my, my touchstone for like weird knee jerk studio idea is like the, uh, men in black jump street crossover that they, <laughs> that they mooted in their emails. And it seemed like it was actually going to happen at some point, uh, and then didn't happen. And it's like, well, of course it didn't happen. That's the stupidest fucking thing I've ever heard. Terrible. Chris added, by the way, also... Now that you've seen Nine Lives, what is your favorite Nine film? Nine Lives, Nine Songs, District Nine, or Star Trek Deep Space Nine? That's a TV show. That's a TV series. Also, I haven't seen Nine Lives, so Nine Lives might be my favorite Nine-based movie. I've seen Nine Lives. I haven't seen Nine Songs. Isn't Nine Songs is Michael Winterbottom's sex film? Yeah. Emphasis on the bottom. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And District, District Nine is pretty good. District Nine. There's also the movie Nine. With Daniel Day-Lewis in it, that's kind of a sequel to Eight and a Half. Oh, yeah, yeah. The musical. Yeah, but I haven't seen that. Um, Shouldn't he have called... Why didn't Michael Winterbottom call that movie 69 songs? Yeah, idiot. Like, (laughs) I'm sorry, that's an open goal. That's the sex number. Yeah. What was he thinking? Guy's a fucking idiot. I guess it would have had to have been a bit longer, the film. So fit all the songs in. Why didn't he just call it that number which spells out boobies on a calculator? Like 8,008. Um, wait, no, it has to go upside down, right? So it's like two, one, three, eight, zero, zero, eight, isn't it? And then you turn it upside down. It says, yeah. <laughs> wait, like, what number is like that? 21 million, thousand and eight or something. No, so that's wrong. 200 million. Hold wait, up. You look it out and I'll just throw it in. <laughs> okay. It's two million three hundred eighteen thousand and eight. <laughs> yeah, I should have called it two million. <laughs> two million three hundred eighteen thousand and eight <laughs> songs. <laughs> yeah. And as long as you like have the uh, the poster for your movie in the correct font. Yeah. Um, that sort of digital font, people will get it. That's what he should have called it. Yeah. Anyway, that's an open goal. So if he'd made that, certainly would have been my favorite two million three hundred eighteen thousand and eight film. As for nine, I don't think you can get better than nine lives in terms of nine related films. You know, District Nine, not bad. Not bad. Not bad, but uh, it does have a guy turning into another thing. So I liked it because of that. Same I like movies where there's nine in the title and a guy turns into a thing against his will. 
Um, <laughs> that's my niche. So, so on that in that, in that regard, District Nine is pretty good, but it doesn't have the uh, the same cat litter tray gags. I don't know if there's any litter tray jokes. He's eat, he eats cat food. He does though. eat cat food. There's a lot of connections there. <laughs> You're right. He eats cat food. Yeah, and so does. But he's he, yeah. But he's into. It. He loves cat food, right? Yeah. Kevin yeah, Spacey he's... as a cat, he's a bit reluctant to eat cat food. It's not the sort of gourmet human food he's he's used to as a yeah, as a rich really... man. Don't his taste buds change and like you know? I think it's... once he really gets stuck into it, he he does enjoy it actually. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so I think, I think they make a good double bill. I actually really recommend. And then you can uh, have a discussion group afterwards, talk about the similarities and the differences. Sure. That's a little film chat activity you can do with your friends. Then get back to us. Let us know how you got on. Please do. Hello, you've reached Christopher Nolan. I can't come to the phone right now. I shipped all of the sand from Dunkirk Beach to Pinewood Studios and the French are complaining. Leave a message after the tone. Hello, Christopher. It's your old pal, Mark okay. I'm on the set of my new movie, Going in Style, and I heard you're making a new movie about Dunkirk. I don't know if you know this, but I was in the movie The Battle of Britain. So it's only fitting I should be in the preceding historical movie. Anyway, give me a bell when you got a script. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Superhero films announced, casting rumors leaking out. M. Night Shyamalan's film is hated, Paul Thomas Anderson's is fated, Meryl Streep's Oscar tipped, Matt Damon's in a viral vid, Michael Bay's made a mint, that's the news that's fit to print. Dev Patel has been on quite a career high point recently, he got that BAFTA for Lion. And he's transformed himself from skinny kid from skins. He's a sexy man now. And then line, he kind of like bulked Ooh. up. He grew a little bit. Became and... a surfer dude, a sexy surfer dude. And obviously some producers saw this movie and he was like, hello. Hello. He's pretty sexy. He yeah. play a stripper. And he's attached himself to a film called Chippendales, which is all about the Chippendales brand, the sort of stripping, dancing troupe. You can hire the hen parties and stuff. And he'll be joining Ben Stiller, who's been attached to the project for a while. Uh, what sounds perhaps superficially a bit like some magic mic is a much more darker tale because uh, Patel, if he signs on, will play Steve Banerjee, who was this sort of entrepreneur who came up with the idea and founded the successful Chippendales brand, but then seemed to be gripped by mad paranoia and a catalogue of lawsuits, culminating in him paying a hitman to have the original Dale's choreographer, Nick Denoa, which is the role Ben Still will play, murdered. It gets strange from there because he denied bail following evidence he had made these arrangements. He was kind of banged to rights and he hung himself in a cell hours before his sentencing. So we're not really sure. I mean, what's the tone? There's a lot of story there between those two events, surely. Yeah. Between successful stripping men and 
Yeah, I'm kind of hoping that it begins in a kind of like Magic Mike XXL sort of tone of just, you know, riotous fun and then concludes in this incredibly grim like drama way. But is is he doing the stripping or just organizing the stripping? It sounds like he's just organizing the stripping. That's a disappointment to us for you. Well, quite like to see. What is, you know, what is the real, was the real Steve Banerjee a hunk? Did he get the idea when he removed his clothes in public and someone was like, I'd pay to see this? just heard some yells he was like getting drunk in a bar and he yeah and then someone know, just like put threw, some like 20 dollar notes into his into pants his, yeah he didn't like, even realize till he was getting home later and he took his underwear off and he loads of money fell out and he's like wait wait a second yeah because um dev patel there's that scene in skins where his mum comes in when he's like naked and he's like mom mom doesn't say it like that obviously no get out of my room um, I'm only 18 years and it's, old. It's been like 10 years as I've seen Dev naked, and quite frankly, that's 10 that's, years that's too, too many. That's too long. That's much too... <laughs> what, you prefer to see him naked on an annual basis? That's 10 years too many. You've got to see him naked every year if possible. I've looked up what he looks like. Uh, not that hot. How bulky is he? Like, Does he look like he could have a great bod? No, he looks like a sort of businessman, to be honest with you. Let's have a look. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a shame. I thought, well, maybe, I don't know, maybe they'll combine a couple of characters. They'll have him also be the first stripper or something like that. I'm really into the idea of Dev Patel being a stripper in a movie. I think it would be great. Also, as well as he's doing in his career, he's sort of pigeonholed into the sort of go-to Indian guy. There's a story about, like, Lion was, like, about a slum kid from India and yeah. Australia and Best Exotic Marriott Hotel. You know, he's just making films like Indian-centric films because I think he is the go-to guy in Hollywood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really so I like the idea of him doing a tale which isn't related to his, the, his, his sort of Indian heritage. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Apart from Chappie, of course, his breakout, his best film. I'll be, I'll be curious to see how the tone of this film is going to be pitched. Whether it's going to be like a, like a hilarious caper or like, like a, a grimly, se- yeah, yeah, like some sort of actually grimly serious. Well, maybe with Ben Stiller, I don't know if it could be. It's a bit sounds a bit like the founder, that movie made about at McDonald's yeah, with yeah. an evil founder, except like with the added salaciousness of it being about male strippers. And I'm all for more male nudity in movies as well. I think Magic Mike brought like opened a space for films about stripping that people will take seriously. Yeah. Those team films were quite successful, and they weren't just like pure comedy nonsense films. You know, they were like, well, I haven't seen the first one. Well, but the, this... yeah, the first one is basically the plot of A Star Is Born, but with stripping, but with stripping. instead of yeah. Musical but they theater. sort of showed that you can introduce stripping in you know as a as a device into your film without it just being like comic. Yeah, and uh, and so I think this film's quite well timed. I mean, they've probably been trying to get off the ground for a while, but I think audiences are now ready for a real stripping film absolutely <laughs> i know i am i am i'm more than ready sam and danny both watched a film and they decided to record a few opinions on the things they saw you're gonna hear them in a moment or so there could be angry disagreements but their views are normally quite close let's join share between two podcast brothers do they let one another speak or do they interrupt each other the light is on the guys are in so let the chat War for the Planet of the Apes, the third in this new prequel trilogy, utilizing effects so bleeding edge they make your eyeballs burst into flames. <laughs> <laughs> Here is the official synopsis. So Caesar, played by Andy Serkis, and his apes are forced into a deadly conflict with an army of humans led by a ruthless colonel played by Woody Harrelson, 
After the apes suffer unimaginable losses, Caesar wrestles with his darker instincts and begins his own mythic quest to avenge his kind. As the journey finally brings them face to face, Caesar and the Colonel are pitted against each other in an epic battle that will determine the fate of both of their species and the future of the planet. And here is a clip of Caesar talking to a chimp that's escaped from a zoo called Bad Ape, played by a scene-stealing Steve Zahn. Are there more like you? More apes from zoo? Dead. All dead. Long time. Human gets sick. Ape gets smart. Then human kill ape. But not me. Listen, human. Bad ape. Bad ape. Wonderful. Wonderful. One thing you can't tell from that clip is the ape CGI quality. How ridiculously good. How ridiculously good it is. Yeah, it's amazing. It's sort of like every successive film has improved to the point where it's hard to see if they can make it any better. It is basically photorealistic. And because it's apes, they don't really they don't seem to have the uncanny valley issue or it's just so good that they have bypassed it. Yeah. So it's astonishing. It's astonishing, yeah. Yeah, I um well, I've seen the previous two, you haven't. And I haven't. So we we get to come to it from two exciting angles. And as, I, yeah, for um, you it's a trilogy capper and for me it's really the first in a <laughs> <laughs> in in the reverse trilogy that I'll be watching. Um but I really really liked it. I liked it too. I thought I it was think really good. This um they were always complaining about the sort of mad studio sort of epic franchise plans. But this kind of franchise has kind of crept up on people where they seem to they make well one film and it's like a complete story and then three years later they make another film and it's a complete story and now they've sort of like pulled it off in a way which feels like it might be the last time any studio allows this to happen yeah 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 yeah. and it's a very emotionally complex and refreshingly like epic movie it's like it sort of succeeds in being epic just by trying yeah, I th- well, we were talking a bit earlier uh, before we were recording about like that that it had been compared to Logan, right? That like someone was comparing it. Yeah, it's got a sort of elegiacal westerny kind of vibe to it. Yeah, um, but I think that it's quite an instructive comparison in a way, in that Logan really felt like a like straining to be mature in a way that was ultimately kind of adolescent. Like you can tell it's a mature movie because it's like horribly violent, because people stabbing. swear, like old men piss themselves. You know, the world is just unremittingly horrible. Deal with it. And Wolf of the Planet of the Apes also certainly feels like a mature blockbuster. It feels like a film, you know, for grown-ups and that they were trying to make like a very serious movie. And there's not very many laughs in it. But that their approach to making it serious is just to be relatively slow-paced to deal with grown-up thematic storytelling. But to have like all of the like hardship and the nastiness of the movie is all in service of something. It just feels like a proper story about people rather than it just foregrounding grotesquery for its own sake. Yeah, absolutely. It feels a bit like because they have incredibly sophisticated animated apes who are as smart as people and that they are almost like daring you not to take them seriously as uh, fully fledged human characters or like treat them in that way. But with constant close, like extreme close-ups of the apes' faces and them reacting to stuff. Yeah. And just scenes of them looking at things. And the movie is basically in love with the apes that it's created. Yeah. And a lot, a lot of the action really consists of like ape reaction shots. 
but it's very effective. I, I kind of really like the tone of it. I found it very refreshing. I mean, especially coming from having not seen the other films and being used to a very frenetic and excitable kind of tone in a lot of modern blockbuster filmmaking. Yeah where no one ever shuts the fuck up. The plot is incredibly complicated and has a million moving elements and there's a thousand characters and like every two seconds a new action scene happens and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, and yeah. and this movie was a real balm in a way. Even though it's very serious, it felt kind of gentle and engrossing and quietly spectacular, particularly because of CGI, but it's like, it's very beautifully shot. Yeah, and absolutely. the scale like ramps up at the end. But it just, I don't know, I didn't, it just... The, it feels like the stakes riding on the film were exactly correct, where no studio is going to fail if they don't sell this movie, but it's still a big, like, event film, and it's just made with this kind of quiet confidence that you, you know, you'll just be into it, and it doesn't, like, have to do things to wow you every second. Yeah, this might be a slightly obvious and silly point, but just the fact that they are CGI apes just is instantly more engrossing than if it was just about these kind of two warring humans. And I'm kind of happy to watch a scene where a bunch of apes sit around and talk. It's just instantly more engrossing. Yeah, than yeah, a bunch yeah. of humans. Yeah. And uh, there's a lot of mileage out of that. And also because the apes are evolving and they talk in this slightly primitive way, I think it kind of like avoids kind of corny lines and stuff because all the delivery is very blunt. But at the same time, the performances are incredibly layered and emotional. And, and re- just really good. Like, all like, the performances are very, very good. Yeah, Andy Serkis is amazing. And, I don't know, he's always, like, kind of, he kind of talked about as, like, the most underrated actor just because you don't see his face that often. But he, he's doing it like it's the role of a lifetime for him. Yeah, he Every is... single line he delivers is almost comically invested with, like, intense emotion. Well, that's kind of, yeah, the point is, like, like you were saying, it's just got this confidence to it. And it wins you over because everybody is, like, invested in it. And it feels like a real labor of love by everyone. No one's phoning it in in this movie. Yeah, 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 completely. And he's brilliant, as are all the um, eight performers. Uh, Steve Zahn, like, uh, brings some welcome comic relief. It's quite a dour franchise as it goes. And, like, his bad ape character. Yeah, there's a couple of gags that worked quite well. I thought they didn't feel too sort of shoehorned But even he has this sort of melancholic backstory aspect. You know, everything's fully rounded. And um, Woody Harrison... I think he does a great job because his character is obviously very functional. They need like a villain. But at the same time, his backstory is pretty uh, relatable. It's kind of similar to the previous film in that the sort of villain has a very understandable point of view. Yeah. And it's the idea of like once the conflict starts, you know, you're just kind of trapped in this, uh, this you know, they're going to end badly. Yeah, and- I thought, well, I, having seen the trailer, he did seem like quite a functional villain in a way. There's a trailer line where he's like, sometimes to save humanity, we must abandon our humanity. (laughs) And I was like, okay. Uh, (laughs) um, But I think that's probably the bluntest and least subtle line that he has to deliver. And I was quite impressed, actually, with how much presence he has. And um, yeah, and there's a lot of like movie influences kind of tied up in his stuff. People have been comparing um, uh, him to a sort of, uh, what's the guy called in Apocalypse Now? No, Kurtz. Yeah, because of Colonel Colonel Kurtz type thing. It's like, you know, man whose soul is mad from war. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, The lines of Dennis Hopper's character, the haircut of Marlon Brando's, the sunglasses of Robbie Duvall's. Yes, exactly. He's got all the elements. Martin Sheen. But he's also got a bit of uh, the guy from Cool Hand Luke. Like, whoever is the guy who runs the... uh... Yeah, failure to communicate. Yeah, yeah. I mean, all that kind of like evil prison warden kind of thing. And like, all that stuff is really, really well done. I think he's got a real genuine menace to him. 
and he's got one kind of exposition scene uh and i don't know i just bought into it i was basically i basically bought into it uh, and the the denouement is very well executed and they've they've got some clever ideas i think like i think there's a there's a kind of argument in the movie over which quality makes you human which is done in quite a neat way like yeah. what is it what is the most like indivisibly human quality or like what's the essence of being human and who's keeping theirs and who's acquiring theirs yeah and that stuff is quite it's just it's just, it's just quite well played out uh there's a really good little girl character in it I yeah, the I'm... one good female character in this H franchise. If there is like a bone to pick, it's like the, all these prequel films. I don't know about the old 60s versions, but it's very much uh, viewed as a sort of patriarchal society on both sides and the women don't go much yeah. looking. But this, um, there's no, there's, yeah, there's no there's no women in the movie, but they do have, they've introduced one who doesn't have any lines, but it's quite good. <laughs> but she's got a lot of presence, this kid. Yeah, she's great. Like her performance is fantastic. Um, she obviously had to act against sort of like hunched people wearing like Great lycra suits nice. covered in bobbles, and uh, you know she's she's ace like uh, she's brilliant. She gets some great she gets some great moments. Uh, so I was rather I was very much won over by it. Absolutely, yeah. I would heartily recommend it. Yeah, go it's, see it. It's great. And I can confirm that you can see it even if you haven't seen the previous two movies. Didn't seem to be a problem. As long as you're aware of the basic thing where apes, you know, become super smart and then they take over the world, I think there you go. There you go. Hello, you've reached Christopher Nolan. I'm afraid I can't come to the phone right now. I've commandeered the entire British fleet for a two-second shot and the Queen is sending me some rather angry emails. Please leave a message after the tone. Hello, Christopher. It's Michael again. I'm just reading Screen Daily, and I've heard the movie is mainly focused on young guys. You've got the bloke from, I don't know the name of the band, but he's very good looking. And I realise there might not be a role for an elf man. That's okay. I'm going to make Youth 2 with Paolo Sorrentino. But next time, there's a role for an elf man. Give your friend Mike a call. My favourite film stars Bridget Bardot She's the queen but she wants to be in radio So she starts a podcast with her friends And the terrorists try to stop her but she beats them in the end Dunkirk. It's the new Christopher Nolan movie, his follow-up to Interstellar. All of his films uh, are huge you know, event movies when they arrive. This one is no different. It's about the events at Dunkirk, the beginning of World War II, when 400,000 Allied soldiers were trapped on the beach at Dunkirk, having been driven to the sea by the Germans and had no means of escape. And uh, eventually the majority of them were rescued by a flotilla of boats that were sort of civilian boats that were commandeered. Um, or were sent out by the British uh, to go and save them. And it was an enormous operation. It was a remarkable success. And Nolan's taking it on. He's turned his epic eye to it. And, yeah, we don't have a clip of it because it's, uh, it's not clip, very dialogue-focused. But it's basically kind of three interconnecting stories all running on different Different time periods. Timelines. Yeah, it's got a very interesting construction. It's One of them is Mark Rylance as a civilian and his son and his son's friend on a little sailboat going out to rescue people another one is tom hardy and jack loudon as these two rf pilots trying to keep the germans at bay and protect the ships that are leaving dunkirk and the other one is about this soldier which is never named in the film but in the credits he's listed as tommy and perhaps a sort of wink to 
He is a Tommy. He's, He's a the Tommy, Tommy. Played by a newcomer called Finn Whitehead. Fion. Fion. Fion Whitehead, Whitehead, who teams up with some other young uh, soldiers, one of them played by Harry Styles, and it's all about the sort of uh, grunts on the ground army perspective, and those three are sort of interlinked, along with Sir Kenneth Branagh, hamming it up as the sort of naval sort commander, of naval sort captain of guy. staring at a sea and sort of... Just looking know, noble. He's just, just like noble know, officer type. Just imagining how great he looks. Ke- keeping his lip as stiff as possible. Yeah. Yeah, so we saw this in IMAX, the big film format. For maximum maximum grandiosity, loudest possible boams from the Hans Zimmer score. And it was it's quite an overwhelming experience to watch this movie. It's very intense. It's non-stop. It's kind of constructed like uh, one long set piece. Um, yeah, it's, it's like got, the final third of a movie, but the, but the whole book. film. Yeah. And a lot of that is to do with the Hans Zimmer score, which is this kind of ticking clock based, constantly increasing in tempo thing, which it just feels like some like, turning screw uh, that does not like let up. And it really bludgeons you over the head. And so I feel like I'm still slightly dazed by it. And I don't, I'm finding it hard to decide how I felt about the movie, but I think that I liked it. (laughs) Yeah, I liked it. I feel basically what reservations I have are somewhat mitigated just by the sheer scale and technical achievement of it. Yes, I agree with that. And it's such an experience that the quibbles I do have of it, I'm willing to sort of ignore or forgive to an extent just because some of it is so spectacular some of it really is amazing yeah and, and it, yeah narcissist that i am i was listening back to episode two of film chat when oh, we reviewed wow, okay. interstellar and i'm pretty much repeating what you said and about how chris van is like a real asset in that he is the only person making original films on this scale and even if they're sometimes flawed just it's cool that he's around making these massive movies. Yeah. No, he's a he's a unique filmmaker. Yeah. I think that it's really great that we have somebody in the movie landscape who's uh, making films like this and whose studios will trust with these like absurd budgets. And I read somewhere that he based it on... Uh, have you heard of The Shepherd's Tone? No. Which is like a sort of... It's like an audio illusion, which is basically... It sounds like a constantly escalating noise but it's not actually doing that it just sounds that way oh yeah no I, he mentioned i think he mentioned that in his comedy and that's too, what he's kind of trying to do in a sort of film way of constantly ratcheting up the tension and i think for the most part it completely works yeah and the sort of relentlessness is kind of brilliant i don't know like i was yeah it is it is definitely kind of brilliant i think that like the feeling of exhaustion on leaving the movie was not a wholly positive one. <laughs> the grandiosity of it, it does feel like someone who's like, just like smacked you in the head with a frying pan. But yeah, it is, it is an incredible achievement. There's, there's also a few other things about the way that it did the war that I quite liked. Because in some ways it's very corny and in other ways it's quite different to how you normally see yeah, the I, Yeah. Conceptually speaking, it's different because this is all about an event which was a defeat for the British. And uh, and he's quite open about it. And I think the movie is quite open about it as well. It doesn't feel like it's trying to hide that fact too much. And so it's quite clever to make a war film about a defeat because it allows you to valorize the one side of the war, basically, without seeming too militaristic because all they do is, like, not die and rescue other people. Yeah. There's not very much killing in the movie. There's yeah, a bit yeah. of it. But mainly it's about people trying to survive. And the focus is very much not on a uh, a combat between two sides. So even though the Nazis are the bad guys in the movie, I've never seen a film featuring Nazis. 
which does so little Nazi stuff. <laughs> yeah. There's no Nazi iconography basically at all, except like a bit on the planes, but like basically none. There's no swastikas that I could see. There's no Nazi characters. And the hero of the movie, as much as there is one, the kind of the, the kid who you probably see the most of, the soldier, is not a very World War II soldier type. He's this kind of young, uh, fresh... He probably looks like, he looks like he's like 17. Uh, and he's this vulnerable kid, not, you know, the sort of stock war hero type. And it makes the film... It feels like it's about World War One, Because World War One, the the position that that has in the sort of public consciousness is this, like, massive disaster that everyone came out of badly. Uh, and it was... When people think of it, they think of, like miserable people in trenches just wishing that they were at home and in world war Two, it's like you're fighting the nazis and you're doing a noble heroic thing yeah, trying to moral war it's a moral war exactly and that aspect was completely excised from dunkirk and the moral thing is just rescuing people so like that was kind of interesting and that was quite good i think in a way but at the same time there's this very thick layer of jingoism and sentimentality about a certain kind of britishness which is um, a, the a bit lame. Yeah, that kind of blitz spirits thing. Dunkirk spirit, I guess. The Dunkirk spirit, yeah. exactly. And like, yeah, that kind of stoicism, the dignified reserve, the perseverance, uh, that kind of thing. The sort of thing that was being played off of in um, oh, the bridge movie that David Lean made. Bridge of the River Kwai? Bridge of the River Kwai. Yeah, you know, like Alec Guinness, sorry, let me start that again. Yeah. You know, like Alec Guinness's character in Bridge Over the River Kwai? He's yeah. like this very, like, he- heroic, uh, stoic, stiff up lit British soldier yeah. type, yeah. but it's kind of like the movie is almost like a sat- satire on it, or. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, he's madness. He's, yeah, <laughs> it, it turns out to be madness. But in this movie, um, it's, you know, it's more, it feels like some sort of magnified version of the whole British character. Yeah. In a, in a really heroic way. And because they, people, characters aren't really developed, so they just take on that stock quality, and almost all of them. With the there's a couple of other touches like Killian Murphy is this guy with you know uh, PTSD or, or whatever. Um, yeah, I thought he was one of the better. That was a nice touch. Interesting like. touch. Yeah, that was an interesting touch. And some of the stuff that the soldiers are driven to do by desperation, you know, doesn't fit that. But like by and large, you do get that sense, and that's really emphasised by this massive crashing, inceptionified version of Nimrod that um, <laughs> uh, Hans Zimmer um, employs towards the end of the movie which is like massively slowed down and is sort of absurdly grand and just it, it leaves it like it, it makes the final bit of the film rather odd and i can't i cannot quite get my head around what's going on with it but i i feel like i've got a theory for okay let me give you my theory sure. and, then, and then you can give me yours <laughs> but i feel like there's the movie ends up being confused in between whether it's about the resilience of the human spirit kind of thing like just human cooperation and what happens when people are in desperate circumstances like much more the pure disaster movie thing where it really doesn't matter what's going on if it's a tsunami or a war or whatever just humans just extreme, people extreme situations yeah. working together in like the heroism of trying to survive or whether it's about the fundamentally heroic nature of british people and the the sort of flag waving that kind of very old-fashioned patriotism very white very male and that's less good but there's a lot of that in it and they don't go together well i think they don't quite fit together it's a bit weird yeah and i think it's also a case of the first like hours before this nimrod moment the whole movie is trying to situate you on that beach or in those planes it's like you are now you are in it yeah yeah and it's like you're not viewing it through the veil of history 
But at some point in Britain's cultural processing of World War Two, Elgar and World War Two became intertwined. Yeah. So when it's it goes from now on the beach to Elgar, it's like oh now we're viewing it through the veil of history. Oh yeah, that's a really good point. So yeah. it's like it's both uh, then in 1940 and now in 2017. Yeah. And I yeah, that, yeah. Like that switch in perspective isn't very successful. Yeah, yeah, I agree. That, I think once that's really it's important. done that switch, when it goes back to the sort of fighting it's like it's lost something yeah no i agree completely and then like the very coda of the film is this weird melding of both at once and i don't know i guess it's probably a spoiler to uh <laughs> to talk about exactly what happens at the end but like i didn't quite know what note the film ends on it's weird it's this mixture of like sadness and victory and melancholy that well, could like, be seen as being very nuanced and well, could also just be movie, bafflingly like, confused the film is aware of what's going to happen in the future in the way that it's not at the start of the film. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so it's a bit like, well, we lived to fight another day. It's like, well, that was fucking awful. There's going to be five more years of this. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a bit of an odd note. But... Yeah, that's definitely true. It's weird. Like, I think it feels like a film that basically spectator readers or the sort of person who owns way too much bunting yeah. would love this and movie. And loves Bond movies. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. I don't think it's got a particularly progressive kind of historical revisionism to it. But there's still a lot that to like about it. It's not Pearl Harbor, let's put it that way. Yeah, I think it's closer to something like Saving Private Ryan, which has that kind of visceral situation in the war, but kind of framed within a similar... Like, Nimrod, using Nimrod for British people is like playing the bugle and having a flapping American flag yeah, in Saving yeah. Private Ryan. Yeah. It's kind of a similar thing. It's trying to make sense, like make these lives mean something. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, well, after when, making when such horror, a such a great is... argument for it not meaning anything. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so that's a bit of a, a odd note. But those fucking dog fights. My God, insane. the dog fights are so good. <laughs> All right, on a on a on a less insightful note, I don't think anyone could have ever done dog fights better than in this movie. They're so good, and especially seeing them in IMAX when, like, basically the sea and the sky <laughs> look so huge. And Tom Hardy's performance. Just, just through his, his, little, his little twitching eyes. You've lo- you'd love them in Bane. Now you can see even less of his face because he's got an oxygen mask on and he's, you know, in his fighter pilot thing. Fantastic. I loved yeah. it. And probably the weakest single thing in the movie is Kenneth Browner, which you mentioned earlier. Oh, God. He's, I like, I didn't like him before. And see, you know, he, I feel like he had his chance. He's in a proper film, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and I just decided that he's just a bad actor. I really think he's, he's bad. He's awful. He's just terrible. He's an he's an embodiment of the worst kinds of like British narcissism that are, pre- that are present in the film, and he just looks so fucking pleased with himself the whole time. Uh, but yeah, I think you should see, it. and also I would definitely see it in IMAX if you can, because yeah. it's the it's a very it's an experience film. Yeah, it's an experience. So just you know that's the best way to have that experience. So do it, dude, if you can do that. When Graf heard something that changed his life, what he listened to. When John Cusack made a mixtape for his future wife, what did she listen to? And when Michael Madsen cut a guy's ear off, what was he dancing to? And when Tim Robbins showed Shawshank that he had enough, which record did he choose? Yeah, 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 yeah. So... Next week, 
We'll be reviewing some films. We're going to review some films. I don't know. I think it's like it might be a slightly slower pace. It's a bit of a week. slow Everyone's week. Really Everyone's scared of Dunkirk. So. Everyone's evacuating uh, the schedules. <laughs> um, yeah. So the big sick is out. And maybe this documentary, City of Ghosts. Oh might yeah. Go see that. Don't hold us to these. Couple of options. There's also the movie Hounds of Love, which I might see, but. You know, you have to tune in and find out. Tune in and find out. No promises. Until then, keep watching the seas. Keep watching. <laughs> escaping. Keep escaping the beach. Bye. Bye. Hello, you've reached Christopher Nolan. I can't come to the phone right now. I've requested legal dispensation to kill several young men by drowning. And the law is having a field day. Please leave a message after the turn. Christopher, it's Michael again. I've just read that there was a fact apart for an elf man. And instead of giving it to me, you've given it to Mark. Bloody Rylance! Now, you promised me the role of Batman. And then due to a scheduling conflict, you gave me the role as the elf man. Then you promised me the lead in The Prestige. And unfortunately, due to another scheduling conflict, I was in Romeo and Juliet. I had to play the old man. Then you said I could play the role of Dominic Cobb in Inception, but I did me back in. So once again, I had to play the old man. And then you said I could play the bloody lead in Interstellar. But you made me play the old man as an old man and then an even older man. You're taking the piss, Nolan, alright? Never again will I play an old man for you. You bloody disappointed me. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM 
for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.